States, utilities, and cities across the U.S. are making big resolutions to shift to 100% clean energy. In 2018, we saw California, XL Energy, and Portland, Oregon become a few of many important players who are taking bold steps to transform our energy system in the coming years. In this very special New Year's episode of the Local Energy Rules podcast, John Farrell and I, Marie Donahue from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance's Energy Democracy team, sat down to discuss what we're calling the Year of 100. We cover year-end reflections about what we can learn from the numerous 100% renewable energy commitments that were made this year, and what's on the horizon for local renewable energy in 2019. Welcome to a special year-end edition of Local Energy Rules. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This podcast shares powerful stories about local renewable energy. With me today is Marie Donahue, Research Associate on our Energy Democracy Initiative. Welcome, Marie. Thanks, John. And for me, I, I want to say that this seems like the year of 100. I want to start off by just talking about uh, a few of the things that are going on that are related to 100. And the first thing is 100% renewable energy. Um, we've got a lot of states that are starting to look more seriously at this. Hawaii has already made a 100% renewable commitment in prior years. California just made a 100% renewable commitment this year. And five new governors who were elected uh, during the 2018 midterms are also committed uh, to getting to 100% renewable energy in Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Nevada, and Maine. Uh, so it's been pretty impressive to see both how this has affected uh, the elections, but also how states are really starting to move on this policy. Yeah, I just am curious to dig into that a little bit more, John, to see your your take on what sort of led us here, where what, what are the states that have made these commitments? How did we get here? So I, I think really what it comes down to more than anything is simply the economics of renewable energy, that for years and years, the idea of a commitment to renewables was really more of an environmental motivation, although the costs had been coming down. And certainly for wind power, for at least the last decade, wind has been a, uh, very competitive. Now solar power is competitive. We saw bids uh, for um, Excel Energy, a utility based in, in the Midwest, for renewable energy that was cheaper than any kind of fossil fuel energy, electricity you could generate. Uh, and in fact, it was cheaper than existing fossil fuel power plants. So I think that's really what's in the driver's seat more than anything. But it's a great opportunity for folks who do have um, environmental commitments, who want to see economic growth around clean energy, to merge those together in state policy. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think um, what was interesting to me as I learned more about these commitments and, and the change and momentum that they're, they're taking on at the state level, um, to, to also see because of those economics that there are individual choices being made, not just at the state level, but really kind of from the bottom up and was able to put together this map in California, especially to understand that they might be getting closer to that goal and at a rock more rapid pace because residential customers are really taking on the responsibility of, of implementing solar. We mapped out uh, solar projects that are happening across um, commercial and residential locations statewide, and we see this rapid growth over over the years um, to close to 800,000 projects in California. So that sort of speaks to this momentum of these commitments and just the um, ways in which I think decisions that are being made on the ground are affecting states' abilities to be able to make these commitments and, and hopefully follow through on them. So, so what I hear you saying is not only are these states like California making a commitment at the at the state level through the legislature, but all these customers, you said 800,000 over a decade, are already making the choice to go renewable to put solar on their rooftop? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're seeing yeah that rapid growth. And maybe because of that, there I mean, have been new policies in California as well to, to be able to support residential solar that passed this year. 
So what else is what else is happening along with these hundred percent commitments? How are states debating this? You know, uh, you know, maybe what other states are considering this, or what other factors uh, should we be thinking about as states are talking about one hundred percent renewable energy? Well, I'm interested in. I mean, that that map shows the sort of bottom up approach that I think can be taken with just customers sort of individually making decisions. But I think as we think about communities coming together and, and thinking about the collective actions they can take, I've been inspired. Minnesota, for example, is thinking about that there are, are folks at, at grassroots level across the state coming together to start a, a 100% campaign in, in Minnesota. And I think those grass, grassroots efforts of communities to push state legislatures, to push for more policy change and more of these commitments um, is going to be really interesting to watch and, and see how how those campaigns evolve um, really drive change at, at the state policy level. So are there any like yellow flags or anything like that in terms of what states should think about when they're talking about 100% renewable energy? Yeah, it's interesting you raise that. So um, actually just this month, um, we released this report about how um, there is a dirty secret in state renewable goals and standards that um, oftentimes, so in, in state renewable portfolio standards, we see uh, the definitions of renewable energy are really important. Whether states are making commitments to renewable energy or carbon-free, there are nuances to these definitions. This new report that we released this this month in December um, on the number of states that actually count waste incineration as part of their renewable goals. And unfortunately, I think, John, you would agree with me that uh, waste incineration, which is a combustion process, it, it's taking uh, municipal solid waste um, one of those byproducts of that process is uh, the production of steam or energy, but um, but it's a very highly polluting source of energy. But we have 23 states that we found in this report that um, that are classifying that waste incineration as renewable, and therefore in, in sort of direct incentives or just by virtue of them being um, subsidized in that way, this dirty form of energy is being supported and bolstered by. Uh, renewable goals. And so I guess it's just a cautionary tale of how we can think about the definitions of renewable and and how important it is to get into some of the the nitty gritty details of when these commitments are made, holding states and utilities and other uh, leaders accountable to to what those definitions of renewable are and and what they're including and what isn't being included and and where we're directing generally limited resources to, to support renewable power. Um, and in that incineration report, we argue certainly that solar and wind should be what we're investing in and not more dirty forms of energy. And I wanted to just make a plug. I think one of the great things about that report is that we also touch on the more economical and even energy-friendly alternatives to burning waste in terms of waste management, how cities can create recycling and composting programs. Probably not going to go into that too much here, but I think really important to realize that there are these spillover effects. So making a poor choice about qualifying it as renewable energy means we also actually distort the market for, uh, you know, using managing our waste stream. Yeah, I would agree with that. And so it's interesting to think about the implications of these state state goals and the commitments that are being made um, that are forward looking and thinking about 100% renewable. And then yeah, what what would account toward those commitments? But state policies have implications for how the larger system of, of energy and utilities and where we're getting that energy from. I'm curious, John, um, what the implications of that, those state policies are on, on utilities working in this space with this kind of big push toward 
uh, renewables. Yeah. So I, well, I find it fascinating that not only is this the year of 100 in terms of the way that states are looking at renewable energy, it also is the year of 100 for utilities. And in particular, we're talking about a utility that got in the news a lot just in the past few weeks here at, at the end of the year, Excel Energy. So it's a Midwest utility. It serves um, Minnesota, parts of Wisconsin, Colorado, and New Mexico. And they announced that they're going to go 100% carbon free by 2050. Uh, and 80% carbon-free by 2030. So these are pretty monumental goals. They're, you know, It's following on similar commitments, and in fact, in some ways, more aggressive commitments that have been made by public utilities, like municipal utilities. Georgetown, Texas, which we've covered uh, in a podcast previously, for example, already gets 100% of their energy from wind and solar, renewable resources, not just carbon-free resources, which can include nuclear power uh, under the definition that Excel Energy is using. Um, but it is really monumental to have an investor-owned utility, a shareholder-owned utility, make this commitment. It hasn't happened before. Um, and it really, I think, sets the stage for um, a lot of other utilities to potentially make similar commitments. What what I did raise, though, and, and I think it's sort of in the same way we have a cautionary tale about 100% renewable commitments by states, is that we also have to have a cautionary tale about 100% carbon-free commitments by utility companies. Because sometimes there are some questions that we might want to answer about how that's going to be reached. So, you know, I raised three questions, actually, it's a blog post that we put out right after that announcement uh, that we need to think about as we're doing this. Um, one is who's going to carry the risk of these commitments. So an investor-owned utility like Excel has a monopoly in all of the states where it serves its customers. It's the only utility that's allowed to sell power to them, which means it has pricing power. It is generally able to charge whatever it wants uh, as long as it can get approval from public re regulators. And Excel Energy was at the legislature in Minnesota last year looking for a handout for shareholders and to cover their risk for keeping their nuclear power plants open. So carbon-free is great, but um, this is a big concern about you know who's going to carry the risk of these investments and to what degree are those choices and those costs going to be shifted on to customers uh, instead of on the utility shareholders. Before you get into your other questions, I do want to dig into some of that, those behind-the-scenes work that Excel was doing at the state legislature and have you describe a little bit about that story about the nuclear power plant and what Excel might say in, in, in public and what they might be doing behind the scenes to, to change the, the rules around these issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I think more than anything, it was really a strategic blunder for Excel to do what it did last year, which was to come to the legislature with a bill that pretty clearly said, if we blow the budget on our nuclear plant, like we did four years ago in a, on a repair and retrofit to keep the uh, plant operating for longer, customers will carry all the risk and shareholders will still get a profit no matter how much we spend. Um, so it was pretty blatant and it was there was bipartisan resistance. There was a lot of resistance from Excel's biggest customers who would have carried the biggest portion of the risk from ordinary customers. There were really not a lot of people who were big fans of this. And I think a lot of people looked at it as, we understand you want to try to keep these power plants open. For many legislators, they they were fine with it. You know, they don't have they are willing to overlook the environmental implications of nuclear power and the waste generation. Uh, they're even willing to overlook the fact that it's not terribly economical. Uh, in fact, Excel's nuclear power plants are rated among the sort of least uh, financially sound among those in the country. Now, it's not in a competitive market, so that doesn't mean a whole lot necessarily in terms of, of where they're at, but it does have implications for to meet that carbon-free goal, for example, that Excel is now made this year 
uh, you know, is, are those nuclear plants going to be the most cost-effective tool? And I think that's really the question that we tried to raise. We, we sort of had two questions. One is we sort of, we brought, we framed their request uh, and tried to make it clear to people that it was a blank check. They were essentially saying, whatever it's going to cost for us to do this, this law will give us a blank check to meet those costs and to pass them on to customers. And that's the biggest danger is to make sure that customers are not going to be left holding the bag for investments that are not necessary or that are unnecessarily expensive. Um, and that unfortunately is like even a bigger danger now. Excel's made this very bold carbon-free commitment which for which they should be applauded. And yet now they're going to go to the legislature again this year I would suspect they will introduce a similar bill and they will now be able to introduce it in the context of we made this landmark climate change related commitment. Um, so I'm a little concerned that we'll see progressive legislators look at that and say, well, that's the price that we have to pay or even other advocacy groups. For me, what it is, what I think is the most important is that we say we've made these carbon free commitments, which is terrific. What's the, what's the most economical way to get there that really uh, supports our communities to create jobs, et cetera. Um, and there's some plenty of evidence. In fact, we've written about this, uh, tweeted about a little bit. There's a smarter grid study that came out uh, this year in Minnesota. And what it essentially said was um, we can definitely lower our costs as we reduce carbon emissions on the grid system, but we can actually create a lot of community wealth and keep costs low by doing it in a local strategy, which is to say to build lots of rooftop solar to generate a lot of our energy within our communities. One of your second questions to Excel, right, was around how... Can we community scale instead of thinking about these really expensive uh, investments in nuclear or other centralized power plants? Absolutely. And I, I'm glad you brought that up. So the, yeah, the, second, the second major question I had was, what, how does this change the, the utilities perspective on distributed customer-owned energy? Because generally speaking, Excel and many other investor-owned utilities have been fairly hostile. And for good reason, the business model they operate under, the state laws they operate under, uh, they make a profit when they build stuff themselves. Uh, and so if lots of customers, like you mentioned in California, 800,000 customers are building their own solar arrays, well, the utility shareholders don't make money from that. And in fact, the utility actually then collects less revenue in addition to not getting to build the power plants. So there's been a very strong tension. And Excel even put out a video four years ago saying, essentially, if we build solar, we should do it right, which means we should do it in a utility-owned fashion. So they've been pretty clear about that. And I think it's important for uh, advocates who care about the economic opportunities from clean energy to understand that that's one of the things that's at stake. Um, I'll just quickly wrap up by saying the last question I had for Excel and for any utility that makes this commitment is, are you serious? Because at the same time Excel is making this commitment, they're actually offering to buy a new natural gas power plant um, with which they will have a relationship presumably over the next 30 to 40 years. It's going to be pretty hard to be 100% carbon free in 2050 if you have a gas plant you're still operating. Um, unless you make some pretty generous assumptions about the ability to do carbon capture. Um, that's not proven very economical, but also then you have the same waste problem that you have with incinerators or with nuclear power plants, which is what do you do with the leftovers? Um, what are you going to do with that carbon? And we don't really have an, an answer to that. So uh, at any rate, um, the it is a, a big commitment. It's something uh, I think that is worthy of generating a lot of great conversation um, about uh, how we get to where we get. Um, and, and I think it also, the, the last thing I would say is this, this commitment by Excel also really highlights what you were talking about first, Marie, about what states were doing, uh, because we've kind of mapped out and, and have published a timeline of the states where Excel does business, Minnesota, Colorado, New Mexico, we're all pretty fast out of the gate more than a decade ago, requiring the utility to invest in renewable energy. 
So Excel is taking it further than state law is requiring them to right now. But the thing that got them started was even 20 years ago when Minnesota first told them in exchange for allowing them to store more nuclear waste in this state, start buying wind power. And they did that and found out that it was a very good deal. And that's why last year, even you heard their CEO saying, we're swapping steel for fuel. We're going to build renewables uh, instead of fossil fuels, generally speaking. So uh, a noteworthy commitment, something we hope other utilities emulate, but some good questions to keep in mind as you look at that. Stay tuned for the rest of this episode after a short message from our Energy Democracy Initiative Director, John Farrell. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. Now, we've talked about states and utilities, but I think the other exciting thing in this year of 100 is what cities are doing. Could you talk a little bit more about the kinds of commitments that cities are making around 100% renewable energy? Yes, I'm excited to talk about that. So uh, I think that there are now, um, as of this fall, over 100 cities that have committed to going 100% renewable through this great grassroots sort of bottom-up campaigns, largely from allies at the Sierra Club, for example, uh, Ready for 100 campaign, um, and some other types of places. I mean, you mentioned Georgetown, Texas, for example. They Cities are realizing that these investments are um, economical, that tide is, is rolling in on renewable energy. But what's interesting, I think, from our perspective, and it speaks to that kind of last question that you were talking about, utilities being serious when they're making these commitments, with more than 100 cities now having committed to goals, we're curious what's next. What, how, how are cities thinking about the ways in which they're making these commitments and, and following through on them? How will they source their energy? And cities have... A range of different tools at their disposal and, and cities in different places have different types of strategies. Um, and I think through that, uh, through seeing these commitments come out and, and then really wanting to know what's next, we were talking with these cities and, and wanted to dive into those questions of how cities can reach their goals. Will it come from local, more community scaled investments or will it just be sort of by, by buying from big utility scale models. So there are some options and real choices cities can make when they make these commitments. And um, what I was excited about to take on as a project that ILSR uh, worked on this year, as hopefully our podcast listeners are now aware if they've been listening to the series, um, this Voices of 100% podcast that we rolled out um, to really highlight the voices of leaders and communities uh, that have made commitments to ask them what they're thinking about, what their uh, cities are thinking about with uh with these goals and where they plan to to go next. We've highlighted a a number of these communities and I, yeah, I'm excited to dive into, yeah, telling those stories, continuing to tell those stories. And um, I think in addition to just 
sort of at a high level what choices cities are making. It'll be kind of fascinating to see strategies, what strategies and cities can take to fund uh, initiatives to go renewable. Um, so, John, I know you've um, written a bit about a really fascinating ballot initiative that was on um, a city uh, election this fall um, in Portland, for example. And then there are some other strategies that I know you're very familiar with um, that cities can take to finance clean energy uh, and renewable energy locally. So uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, that ballot initiative story? And- yeah. Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, we, I've been really excited to follow the ways that cities are are following up and following through on these 100% commitments. And I'm really glad that you didn't have a case of Midwestern modesty and, and fail to mention this Voices for 100 podcast. Marie has been doing a terrific job producing these podcasts um, with cities where we're really asking them not only how did they get to making that commitment, like what kind of organizing happened on the ground uh, in order to, for them to, to formally make those commitments, but, but how do they intend to get there? Um, and a couple of cities provide really interesting stories around that. One is uh, Minneapolis, which is where Marie and I both work uh, in our uh, Minneapolis-based office and where the city has raised its utility franchise fee. Um, we've actually done some writing about this uh, and have included some uh, more lessons learned from this uh, in our Community Power Toolkit, which you can find on our website. It's an, kind of an interactive toolkit for things that cities can do. So we hope that cities that are making these commitments are able to use that tool. Um, but Minneapolis said, let's raise this utility franchise fee by about 2 to $3 million a year and dedicate those funds to helping us reach our climate action goals to reach our 100% renewable energy commitment. And so uh, a lot of focus is on um, basically how do we help people who have not been able to participate in the clean energy economy participate. Um, I think the, the one that you mentioned, though, that was a ballot initiative. So Minneapolis was able to do that just through a city council measure. It was a power that they had negotiated with the utility about five years ago to allow them to uh, increase this fee, which is a, a city-based fee on utility bills. Uh, but Portland did something, I think, even more monumental. So we, you know, we come back to these midterm elections resulting in a lot of clean energy commitments. Portland put in 10 times more money. They're going to have a fund of about $30 million a year in order to support clean energy efforts across the city. So they're really say, uh, saying seriously that you know they want to make this happen and they want uh, to use city-based resources um, in order to make those investments. And I just want to hand it back to you, Marie, because you've been studying Portland and other cities that have come up during our Voices for 100 series. And I think what's really exciting about what Portland is talking about is equity is at the center of this, of this pot of money, that it's not just about how do we build a solar array on City Hall, but about how do we make sure that everybody in Portland can benefit from trying to achieve this commitment? Right. Yeah. I think in talking to Alan Ippolito from um, one of the main groups, it was a collaborative effort from my understanding um, to get this ballot initiative on the ballot and then really a ton of local organizing across intersections of racial and economic justice, of uh, social and renewable energy advocates to really push for that um, kind of broad coalition to to ultimately be successful in passing the measure. And I think that diversity of organizations coming together, the real focus on um, communities of color and low-income coalitions from neighborhoods across the city to be able to um, have that sort of, um, to set the table, to be able to be involved in uh, in the process was um, just able to steer the conversation to really make equity a, an important part of that campaign Um are really central. Uh, and I think it's interesting to think about the ways, the mechanism of that 
uh, fund that'll be developed to um, also put in the lens of some of ILSR's work on corporate concentration and this growing wealth gap in the U.S. because it's the mechanism of the, the fund is is going to be a tax on big corporations that aren't reinvesting in the communities that aren't um, supporting um, the, the communities in Portland. And so it's yeah just an interesting case, I think, to dig into more. And I'll, I'll point folks to that longer episode. So I'm I'm curious. Can you tell me about I, Portland? Is obviously this really powerful example, but it's not the only place that you've discovered in our podcast interviews and, and whatever that has uh, been talking about equity as an important part of their 100% campaign. Right. Yeah. I think it's just fascinating to me how how many cities how important it is to start talking and thinking about equity really at the center, um, racial equity, economic equity. And I think in cities, because cities deal with this sort of day-to-day, they're, they're working on understanding communities across their cities who are, who are benefiting from decisions made at the municipal level, uh, who's involved in those decisions. Um, I think it, it just really lends itself at a city level when we're having these conversations around energy to bring equity into the conversation. Um, and yeah, if, it was great to hear and, and to really dig into how cities are thinking about making 100% renewable commitments and doing so equitably in places like Atlanta in, and, and as diverse as Pueblo, Colorado. There are small and large cities all thinking about equity in really a sort of central sense and in, into these uh, commitments. So um, I think it's both a part of making energy more affordable to communities, making sure that community groups and those broad coalitions like in Portland are all at the table. Yeah, it's been exciting to just see some of that bubble up in all, all different types of places. So we've kind of covered our year of 100, 2018. I was hoping to take a couple minutes at the end here to talk about what we see coming in 2019. Uh, so I want to toss it to you first, Marie. What do you see coming in 2019 uh, You know that is going to follow on this year of 100, this discussion of 100% renewable energy? Yeah. So another thing that I think came up quite a bit in in our city's conversations, but I think also um, is certainly being discussed at, at state levels too and, and at, within utilities, um, is this uh, idea of community-owned renewable energy and the model of being able to think about ways that we invest not just in the solar on our rooftops as individuals, but the mechanism to, to share uh a community-owned array um, has equity implications in that renters, other uh, groups that might not have access, can access community-owned renewables. Uh, And so thinking about just the growth in that, we've seen, John, you are are very aware of Minnesota's program and do a great job tracking that on a monthly basis, Um, just the growth in community-shared renewables and policies across states that are enabling those models. Um, But I think it'll be interesting to see how, how those programs are, are funded, whether there are, I mean, we've been involved in some regulatory processes where there's sort of the fine tuning of, of how these programs are being run at, at, across different states. So I'm, I know I'm going to be looking into um, both existing financing mechanisms for um, enabling community solar and then what maybe creative solutions there might be to that local ownership um, in, in the states that do allow community solar. Yeah, that's one thing for me. I'm curious, John, what, what is on the horizon for you and making you sort of look ahead to 2019 and get excited about what new work we might do? Well, one of the things I'm excited about is something we actually talked about already this year. We we had a report out called Reverse Power Flow, where we looked at sort of the implication of energy storage becoming economical at a distribution level. So those 800,000 customers in California that have gone solar already, what happens if they start to add energy storage or if uh, folks who are adding new solar to their homes are able to do, add storage 
because it's cost effective. And I, you know, I think that's, I just want to emphasize, I think that's what's so exciting about this is in a utility system, in a grid system that for over a hundred years has really been centrally, centrally planned. We are now having this opportunity for people to make individual economic decisions, whether by themselves or collectively, as you mentioned with uh, community renewable energy, to get their power from a less expensive source and to coincidentally be doing that from also an environmentally friendly source. Uh, and in a way that brings a lot of community wealth and benefits because it's now keeping the dollars that would have been spent and sent to the utility company in the community. So, um, you know, we, we previewed in our report that fi as soon as five years from now, uh, across many states, as 40 states, that solar and energy storage would be competitive with retail energy prices. And so we're going to continue to watch that. This was, um, you know, Green Tech Media has already reported that 2018 was a banner year for on-site residential energy storage. I expect there to be continued strong growth as long as that may remains economical. Um, the other thing I'm really interested in is this, this whole notion of gas for power generation. You had mentioned Excel investing in... Yes, exactly. And, and there have been some other instances, not just in Minnesota, but in other places... One of the things we discovered in this report that we were doing on energy storage was that even at a large scale, so at a small scale, energy storage and solar is becoming competitive with retail power. But at a large scale, renewables and energy storage are, be, are pretty much beating out any kind of fossil fuel. And especially in southwestern states where you have high energy demand in the afternoons when the sun is shining uh, and you have um, a need to, to meet that demand, solar plus energy storage is competitive or better than um, natural gas power plants, gas power plants. What I'm really interested to see is, uh, are we going to see an end to new gas power plant investments? So we, you know, we track and, and Marie, you've done uh, a quarterly update on new power plant capacity. Uh, we've been doing that now for the past several years. Generally, renewables have been leading, but there's still a substantial amount of utility investment in gas power plants. And whether it's the threat of carbon regulation or the fact that the fuel prices could rise very significantly. Uh, there's a big danger, I think, that these power plant investments uh, don't pan out the way that utilities expect. And so I'm really interested to see uh, if it's if regulators and legislators start paying more attention to the risks inherent in investing in gas at this point in time, uh, especially the cost risks for fuel price volatility, because while prices are low right now, the tendency in the history of natural gas prices is for a lot of volatility and a lot of really uh, intense uh, rise and fall in costs. I know that plants themselves are expensive. I mean, I remember talking with Larry Atencio in Pueblo, Colorado, and there was a new gas plant that had gone in and just like the implications of that on the ratepayers. Yeah. And, and there's the nice thing about solar and energy storage is you can be very incremental in building them without it being terribly expensive. So, you know, you could just plop in five megawatts and kind of meet your incremental needs incrementally rather than building one big thing all at once and then potentially having made a bad bet, whether it's on the size of the facility or on the fact that its fuel is going to be very expensive. So um, the, 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 the partner to that conversation is really about how do we hedge that risk, whether it's with continued investments in solar and storage or with electrification. You know, So we use a lot of gas, not just for power generation increasingly, uh, but we use it to heat homes. Uh, we use oil, which is a, you know, sort of the 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 buddy of of gas when it comes to extraction in vehicles and in both these cases we have electric alternatives now we're talking about electrification so i'm really interested to see the way in which states start thinking about risk mitigation you know we we can make our economy more resilient to volatile fuel prices by electrifying things because our electricity system is increasingly reliant on 
uh, resources, solar and wind, that have no fuel costs, that have no volatility. So we have a really interesting opportunity there, and that's something that we're definitely going to be looking at in 2019 and beyond. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to a little bit longer than ordinary podcast for our year in review, but uh, I think we wanted to cover a lot of really exciting things that were happening. Marie, thanks for joining me. Thanks, John. It was great to be here. And uh, we hope that you'll continue to listen. Uh, we will have more of our Voices of 100 series uh, episodes uh, coming out in 2019, uh, as well as a number of episodes uh, from communities that have created community choice energy programs uh, as a way to both pursue renewable energy goals and to give more opportunity for local uh, renewable energy development. Our first interview will be with uh, Jessica Tovar from East Bay uh, Community Choice Energy in Oakland, California, but um, we'll have a number of more of those episodes coming as well. So thanks all for listening and uh, we'll see you in 2019. Thank you so much for listening to this 2018 Year in Review episode of Local Energy Rules, where our host John Farrell and research associate Marie Donahue shared their reflections about what we can learn from a landmark year of 100% clean energy commitments in states, utilities, and cities across the country. To learn more, we encourage you to check out other episodes in this podcast, including those produced as part of our cities-focused Voices of 100% series, and to explore ILSR's interactive community power map, which is available at ILSR.org. While you're on our website, you can find more than 50 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. We encourage you to tune back into the program in 2019 for new podcast episodes every three weeks. Happy New Year, everyone. Until next time, keep your energy local and thanks for listening.